Again Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. So, one of the problems I have with the parable of the sower is that it's so familiar. If, like me, you were born and raised in a Christian environment, you've probably heard this one on and off throughout your whole life. And actually, it's so well known in British culture that even if this is your first time in church, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd come across this story or, or some version of it several times before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's totally fresh to you, in which case that's fantastic. But the rest of us, the problem is that we may be so familiar with the story that we don't notice what it actually says. We just jump to the Sunday school message, try to be like good soil. But I think there's something more going on here. I think Mark has put this story here to deal with the questions raised by chapter 3. The stuff that Andy looked at two weeks ago. The big question is, why is there opposition to Jesus' message? He's building up a popular following, but why do the people in the know reject him? His family, the people who ought to know him best, they came to take charge of him. Is he nuts then? The teachers of the law, the, the guys who best know their religion, who are steeped in Old Testament study, they disagree with him. They call him a heretic, possessed by Beelzebul. What are we to make of that? 
When you come up to a new idea, something that goes beyond your experience, beyond your skills, what do you do to make sense of it? Do you go on the internet? Do you Google it? Do you, do you look for sites that speak authoritatively? Do you get a book out of the library? Or do you find someone clever who knows more than you about this and, and chat it over with them? You ask the experts, right? And they help you to form your opinion. But what do the experts say about Jesus? In the second half of Mark chapter 3, they seem to say that Jesus is either crazy, wrong-headed, or, or perhaps deliberately deceptive. Either irrelevant or evil. Now let's give credit to Mark as he's writing this. He's straightforward about their objections, isn't he? But what does this do to his faith? When he sees that the people in the know reject Jesus. There's a very easy parallel question for us to draw now. After 2,000 years more history, after seeing Christianity work out and make its mistakes. After, as we like to think, civilization has matured and grown to what it's nice to tell ourselves is some kind of pinnacle. With all that knowledge, what's the expert's verdict on Jesus now? I watched a documentary film recently called The Unbelievers. It's very good. It's very thought-provoking. I, I would recommend it. Essentially, it follows a, a lecture tour by two eminent scientists. The evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins and the theoretical physicist and cosmologist Lawrence Krauss. And th they're promoting, they say, rational, clear thinking. A scientific approach to life. I should say, I, I'm all for that. But central to the film is their verdict on religion. And that's plain. The film's poster shows them boldly walking away from the cross. It's not necessary, they say, for understanding the origins of life. It's not necessary for leading a moral existence. In, in fact, religion, they say, is the source of many woes. Jesus or any other religious figure they might describe as at best an irrelevance and at worst actively damaging evil. So what are we to do? If the great minds, the great intellects of our generation pass a damning verdict on Jesus and on the gospel, when the experts scorn him, should we pay him any attention? After all, if Jesus were God, or even merely a great teacher, how could he fail to convince the people in the know? Is he a fraud then? Is he deluded? What's going on? If Jesus is God, why isn't his message universally accepted? Why didn't this usher in an age of a wonderful peace and prosperity as the world flocks back to its creator, a kingdom of heaven? How could he fail in that if he's God? Writing this book, I think Mark sets up that question in chapter 3. He's got people questioning who this guy is and what's going on. Chapter 4 presents something of a response, I think. 
We can look at it with the, the three questions that Dan suggested to us at the start of this series that help us to get to grips with Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? How can we respond? So first up, who is Jesus? Well, Mark has been very clear. Jesus, he says, is God. This is not a case of mistaken identity. And it's not a case of the experts knowing enough to see through a charade, finding a charlatan. No, they are wrong, says Mark. As we've looked through the book, he's, he's been quite open about that claim. Right at the beginning in chapter 1, he said that this was the good news about Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, the, the Son of God. We've seen stories since then of Jesus showing authority over disease and demons. And Jesus claiming authority to forgive sins and authority over the Sabbath. And we've seen Jesus teaching with authority, amazing his audience. And here again, in, in this passage, in verses 10 to 12, he quotes from Isaiah. He associates himself with that holy, prophetic calling, offering the kingdom of God to his disciples. This is Isaiah's promised suffering servant, God King, says Mark. And if we're in any doubt, he really rams it home to us at the end of this chapter. As often happens, this chunk of teaching is followed by miracles that testify to its reality. Just glance ahead to 4 verses 35 to 41. It's the most spectacular miracle the disciples have seen so far. With a few words, Jesus quells a storm. And they're left asking, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, this is serious power. It's the real deal, says Mark. Now, just breaking for a moment, we may well be sceptical about that. It's, it's beyond our day-to-day -day experience, isn't it? It feels more than a little mythological. If that's you, then let me say that's okay. And let me admit that there's very little I can do to demonstrate the historicity of this passage to you. But Mark's not done yet. He's not given his central claim yet. He's working up, as he develops this picture of Jesus, he's working up to a death and resurrection. That is the linchpin that the rest of the story hangs from. That's the thing to investigate. It's a claim which is so ludicrous if it's not true. And at the time that he was writing, it was still pretty easily testable. There were living witnesses. So if you're sceptical about the reality of these claims, I can't blame you. If you want to know what evidence there is for it, that's the thing to look at. Death and resurrection, that's the place to start. Speak to a Christian you know, speak to a pastor, tease away at the evidence and the questions. I can't convince you that it was real. But you'll see that it fits at least. And as it fits, you see, Mark portrays this man to us as more than just a teacher with authority. He presents him as someone with supernatural power, power over nature. Someone who fits with a, a prophetic tradition going back hundreds of years. 
someone who was testified to by John the Baptist, the Son of God. Even the demons in chapters 3 and 5 recognise him and quail in terror. So why don't the teachers of the law spot it? How can he be God if the people in the know don't respond? I think that answer is tied up in the second question. What did he come to do? Well, yes, obviously there's the cross. That's the ultimate goal of this story. But tied to that, again and again throughout Mark and the other gospel accounts, Jesus teaches See that here in this passage in verse 1? It's not the first time Jesus has taught. It's, it's not even the first time he's taught by this lake. He's been travelling around, speaking to literally anyone who'll hear. And what does he teach? It's not abstract ethics or, or lofty morality. It's not even just Old Testament law. Now look at verse 11. We'll skip ahead to 26 or 30. He reveals the kingdom of God to anyone who will listen. I take that to mean that he's communicating an ultimate reality of what his father is like and how we can relate to him. And I think primarily he does that in talking about himself and then living with his followers so that they can know him and see the truth of him. And how does he teach? How does he talk about himself? I'll see that in verse 2 and 33 and 34. He uses parables. And I think really that's what the parable of the sower is an explanation of. I guess sometimes we imagine that parables are just a Jesus thing. They're, they're for speaking to slightly naive farmer types. Apologies to any farmers listening. Um, maybe we imagine that the parables are a bit basic. They're the beginning stuff for children. And then grown-up Christians will move on to harder books like John or Paul's letters. In fact, the parables were already an established thinking tool by this time. And it seems that underlying them is an assumption of what a physicist might call symmetry. That if the universe is consistent... If there's a rational, consistent creator God, then small situations should be governed by the same rules and patterns that rule big situations. So that if I want to understand the way that a king relates to his kingdom, or a God to his creation, I might be able to get some insight from looking at the way a farmer relates to his land, or a father to his children. And it seems for Jesus there are two big advantages, at least two advantages of parables. The first is that they're powerful. They convey a clear sense of a situation. That's both the logical sense of it, which he explains here to his disciples, but also the emotional sense as well. Can you see that in verses 3 to 8? A farmer goes out to sow his seed. He, he scatters it out there. It's hard work. And some lands on the path and it's, it's lost to birds. This is his livelihood, remember. Some lands on rocky places, but it gets withered. Some's choked off by thorns and weeds. But some falls on fertile ground. And it grows up and it yields 30, 60 
a hundredfold. There's an emotion building there, isn't there? There's a sense of struggle and of loss, but then ultimate success and rejoicing. You know, parables like this are powerful. It's not just for beginners. But more difficult to grasp, and I think what this passage is about, is the second reason. Parables take work to understand. And that means that some people will miss the point. Verses 10 to 12 make it clear that this is a deliberate part of Jesus' strategy. Look at that. Everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. Ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And despite knowing that, despite knowing that his teachings open to rejection or misinterpretation, Jesus deliberately chooses to maintain this ambiguous way of delivering his message. Do you see that again later in verse 33? And 34 as well. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Why? If he knows that some won't hear, that they might not be forgiven because of this. Well, he's aligning himself with the judgment passed down on Judah and Jerusalem through Isaiah the prophet. That after God's people had kept abandoning him and kept running to other fruitless, lifeless idols, and kept seeking pleasure again and again in wicked things, and kept losing sight again and again of a loving, living Creator God. After that, He gave them over to the life they chose. He he removed from them even the ability to see their predicament and need, until their land was desolate. And they were taken into exile. Now of course God in his mercy even then restored a remnant of his people. But not all of them. Let's not forget rejecting God has the possible consequence of being left without him. So back to my original question. Why why is it that the experts are unable to see Jesus for what he is? the teachers of the law, his family, or the modern rationalists. Mark says it's not because Jesus is somehow lacking. He is God. It's because they are the wrong kind of soil. And this is how he's chosen to teach. I think this is the beginning of the outworking of the judgment passed in chapter 3 verse 29 that Andy spoke about last time. Those who have consistently rejected Jesus, who've refused him, who've disowned the truth of the kingdom of God right in front of their eyes, who've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, they end up blind to it. To steadfastly close our eyes and ears to God's calling is to run a risk that he may just leave us to it. Do you see how heartbreaking verse 9 must be to a loving God? Whoever's got ears to hear, let them hear. Or verse 23, if anyone's got ears to hear, let them hear. And that's the parable of the sorrow, isn't it? 
a picture of Jesus giving out the same message, the same invitation, the, the knowledge of the reality of the loving Father God. And yet knowing that so many of his audience will prefer to live without. Hard-hearted, rejecting the seeds so that it's easy pickings for Satan, the deceiver, to, to sway and take them elsewhere. Or so many will give the appearance of responding but only superficially. So that when the hard times come, which they will, or when they're surrounded by other concerns and promises, which, which they will be, the precious seed takes back seat and withers. Those who fall away because of the pains of this world or, or become unfruitful because they're wrapped up in other things. I, I can think of several old friends who, who seem to fall into those two categories. It's heartbreaking. Though I confess I, I've often been rubbish at supporting or chasing them. The seed is lost. There is a tremendous sadness to this parable. Verse 12 is a painful judgment. But there's tremendous joy as well. Read over verse 8 again, or verse 20. See how he rejoices in the disciples. The ones who get it, the ones who give a crop, a crop worth more than everything that was sown, they're the farmer's treasure. They're Christ's delight. And you see why they get it? Why are they good soil? I think in this town it's really important to say with our two universities, it's not about intellect. It's not about cleverness. It's not because they're the experts. You know, if you do watch that film, The Unbelievers, you might not find it hard to start picking some holes in some of the arguments or, or giving counterexamples or, or tearing down parts of the approach. But while we can do that, I, I know from my time as an undergrad, arguing passionately with atheist and agnostic friends, or, or pretty much anyone who wanted to bandy words around, it's really hard to avoid just descending into petty intellectual wrangling, which doesn't convince anyone. Now don't get me wrong, apologetics matter. It's important and useful to show that the gospel makes intellectual and emotional sense of the world around us. If it didn't, it wouldn't be a gospel worth knowing. But the gospel is not about information and a clever argument and a sharp mind. At its core, it is simple and clear. We, we teach it to infants. Anyone who repents and calls on Jesus' name will be saved. Now this, this good soil doesn't receive the seed because it's clever, or virtuous, or from a Christian background, anything but. That's the teachers of the law. Now it's passive in the process. The seed just lands there, and God makes it grow. Now presumably the good soil receives the seed simply because the farmer has carefully prepared the land. Jesus' disciples responded because he lived among them and prepared their hearts and here and elsewhere carefully explained everything to them, not because they were clever. 
not because of how they were brought up. So third question, how do we respond? We'll, we'll think more about that next week as we look at the rest of chapter 4. But let's just look quickly into verses 13 to 20. The classic Sunday school line is to say, oh, well, guys, which kind of soil do you want to be? Go on then, see to it. And I'm not really convinced by that. I think the parable's harder than that. The unsettling bit is that the ground doesn't get much choice in what happens. Even the hard soil, those, those people on the path, they might think that they're making active choices against the gospel, but actually they're just easy pickings for Satan. They're completely under his sway. And that's tough, isn't it? Because if you're anything like me, looking at your day-to-day -day life, you often look much more like the first three than the fourth. Well, the good news is that Jesus is gracious, unspeakably gracious. He helps us to let that gospel take root. He explained this weird, unsettling story to his disciples in verse 34. Oh, sorry, in verses 13 to 20. And in verse 34, we see that he explained everything to them. He taught them what he was like. He revealed the kingdom of heaven. We get some of that explanation recorded here. But on top of this, we've got the rest of scripture and we're promised the Holy Spirit too. God indwelling. A counsellor who will teach us and change us and work in us and prepare the land. And we promise that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because of that. So if you're worrying about what kind of soil you are, don't, don't let predestination questions paralyse you. The questions are a good sign. I think they indicate that there are ears to hear. They maybe indicate a penitent heart ready to respond. Let me give three particular regions for application then. First up, there are huge implications for our hearts here. I think we're given these particular examples so that we can examine ourselves, so that we can look out for these things. Look out then for hardness of heart, the path-like areas where, honestly, you find it difficult to allow the gospel to challenge you. Yeah, the cherished sins that we revel in, or the areas where we're resistant to change and we downplay the need, or perhaps that can of worms, you know? The half-acknowledged guilt that, that you just can't admit or challenge because it's too much to deal with. But the gospel's all or nothing. If I try and wall Jesus off from some aspect of my life, that's just not going to fly. Either I'm going to refuse to let the, the gospel take root, and then Satan's going to pick away the trappings of Christianity outside. Or he's going to end up breaking through. Christ will rule one way or the other. Is there enough depth to your response to Jesus? 
It's so easy, isn't it, just to listen to a sermon, just to read a Christian book or the Bible and then look up a few pages later and think, I don't know what that was. You know, to not engage, to not chew it over, to not consider it deeply. Are we letting the seed put down roots? Or will it end up withering when times get hard? Which they will. To that end, do we let Christ's words dwell deeply in us? Do we ponder and meditate on him? Do we enrich our conversations with the gospel so that we're constantly reinforcing, encouraging, teaching, even rebuking each other? If we don't, we may be easy pickings. And are we alive to the other messages we face, the the weeds that grow up and entangle? Ask yourself, what else do I fear? What else do I delight in? How does that sit with the rightful sovereignty of Christ in my heart? Because whether it's popularity or respect or wealth or my appetites or security or family or studies, if... If any of those good things rival the words placed in my heart, then verse 19, they are going to choke my faith and smother the gospel and render me fruitless. Perhaps that leaves you with a tough choice. Sometimes there are good things that we have to abandon and back away from because we know the delight of them just grows too rapidly and eclipses the stuff that really matters. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus is God. But his word only bears fruit in good soil. It seems there's a real challenge of self-examination here. And, And then consequent prayer. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, help me to respond. Guide my heart to you. Second, and much more briefly, I think there are huge implications for evangelism here too. I am so easily discouraged in speaking of the gospel. Because I I take one little timid step forward, I risk one conversation, I see no result and I tell myself I'm just not gifted. But that's not how it's going to work, is it? Look at the sower. He's flinging seed left, right and centre. As we heard this morning, there is a challenge to be ready all the time, in and out of season, showing Jesus, showing the kingdom of heaven. And it'll be hard. Let's not kid ourselves at that. The sense of this parable is that most of the seeds fall on deaf ears. But look, I'm not called to make the seed grow. I'm called to follow Jesus. To imitate him, to model him and his kingdom in a world that will largely reject it. If you want some encouragement with that, have a a peek later at Isaiah 55 verses 9 to 11. See there that that a different sower, well the same sower but in a different context, finds that God's word doesn't return empty handed. It meets its purposes. It it flourishes and grows. He sees that. But if I refuse to scatter the seed, 
I'll never see it. My fear or my idleness or my shame, those will have rendered me fruitless. Yet the sower's job is hard. Don't be surprised by that. But there's huge encouragement too. Look again at verse 20. See the growth in the good soil. See the value to the Lord. His treasure. Get a sense of how he delights in seeing his people grow into faithful pictures of his word. Images that will spread the news of his kingdom and somehow mysteriously magnify the image of his son thirty, sixty, even a hundredfold. Ponder that. What a huge honour, undeserved, to bring delight to the Lord our God, to bear fruit for him, to be in fact made imitators of this son, pictures of his kingdom. Do you want that? I do.